Hello, and welcome to Emotive Pixels Podcast Season 2, Episode 10. Because it's our job, this episode is a spoiler cast for Final Fantasy VII Remake. Please be aware that all of our episodes are extremely spoiler heavy. We will be spoiling all of Final Fantasy VII and the associated canon for this game. Before we get started, we'd like to start with a question. This week's question was, what is your favorite alternate timeline in the media? Why don't you go first, Craig? Yeah, so I was thinking about this, and the first one that came to mind was the popular ones right now, right? Marvel and the multiverse and things of that nature. But the one that I want to go back to is a launch title for the PlayStation 3, and it's actually Resistance. So I was thinking about Resistance, Fall of Man, and its associated kind of alternate timeline of World War II and aliens invading and things of that nature, as opposed to, you know, the typical war fodder that has happened over our lifetime. What about you, Will? Uh, myself, Will Atkinson, I was thinking about community and the darkest timeline. Oh, that is very good. I love how it's kind of introduced in this one-off episode and then those characters keep jumping back in, like the same kind of theme that happens in like Star Trek and a bunch of other shows too. Feels like for that one though, they didn't even intend it to be a recurring theme and then it just became a thing over the seasons that followed it as well. Yeah, I feel like sometimes that can be the best. Yeah. Didn't try too hard. Speaking of. Oh, you're killing me. (laughs) So let us start by talking about our experience with the original remake, all of the canon. Where are you sitting on that, Craig? Oh, man. Okay, so obviously I have a long history of knowing about Final Fantasy. I'm nearly positive that I owned Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation 1. I can picture like the CD case, the jewel case in my mind, have no recollection of ever actually playing it though. So never played the original. I definitely remember there being a lot going around for Advent Children when that came out. I may or may not have watched that, but also have very little recollection of it and not sure if it's just because of seeing popular culture and all the other associated like content that's been around that over the last decade. And then getting into remake, it was like, okay, I think I'm the target audience. I've always been curious for Final Fantasy VII, never gone back and played any of it, even the multitude of re-releases on imagining every platform. So hopping into remake was really my, my first time digging in deep with the lore of the series, specifically seven. I did play a few later Final Fantasy games, but this is definitely my first interaction with this kind of part of the franchise, I suppose. So that'll be really fun. Before we dig too much into that, myself, I played the original Final Fantasy VII, I think twice, once on PC, most of the way through, and then I played on PlayStation 1, I think, with a friend of mine, like, shortly after I joined the military. There's something about remembering that playthrough that I always look back on fondly. I started playing Dirge of Cerberus, which is one of the intermediary games, which I'll talk about a little bit more here as I start talking about the canon. I loved watching Advent Children, and then we played Remake and Intermission coming up here. There are a few 
that neither of us mentioned. There's Crisis Core and Before Crisis Core, which mainly focuses on the character Zack, who we'll talk about here a little later. And then there's a book, actually, that happens between the original Final Fantasy and Advent Children, which I didn't really realize kind of was canonically in the middle there, which I'm eager to go back and read now that I kind of understand that. Same. Yeah, um, Crisis Core was the PSP game too, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that one started on the PSP, and I didn't actually have an original PSP, which is probably one of the, the main reasons I missed to that one. That's right. Yeah. I do remember, I remember hearing good things about that as well, though. Yeah, so let's just start at the meat of the thing. <laughs> this game is called Remake, not because it's a remake of Final Fantasy VII, but because in-world they have remade the world. Okay. All right, Does that, 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 that blow your mind yet? Yeah, that I was gonna say right, right off the top here, we're just swinging for the fences. I, I knew they had made changes to the world. I did not know how deep down the rabbit hole they went. So yeah, the there are two characters in this game who, well, actually, there's three. So Aerith is an ancient. She apparently is tied deeply to Gaia, which is the the energy that drives the planet. They just base begin to start talking about that in this in the game that we've played. They talk about how the the race of ancients were wiped out. Anyway, a bunch of that stuff happens before this game. But there's something about and, and some of it is still unclear, but it seems like because she has this strong tie to the planet, that when she dies in the original series she actually takes her knowledge of what's going on back into the live stream. And then beginning in this game, it, you there are a bunch of hints that she actually knows what's going on more than what's actually she should know at that time of the game. So she's kind of like seeing the future, seeing what's going on. The other piece are, are the, there are these whispers that pop up all throughout the game, which are these like cloaked shadowy looking figures and they are basically time cops their whole mission in this game is to make sure that this game goes like the last game did they did the whispers exist in the original final fantasy i don't remember anything specific to them there's a little bit of a like a conflict between the clones of sephiroth all of the guys who are like you can see them as real people and they're like also wearing black robes, but they're kind of slowly walking around and moaning. Yep. Remember those guys? Yep. Those and guys are all guys. clones of Sephiroth, who's actually a clone of Genova, which is the whole piece that we could talk about here in a minute. But that shit all gets crazy. They're all trying to bring Genova back together. I hope I got that right. Like um, three minutes in and my mind's already blown from a game that I played for over 40 hours. Yeah. Yeah, super exciting. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, there's a bunch of things that like you try to do or when people uh, almost die that shouldn't be dead, like they'll go in and and fix things or there are like parts where you and I both recently played intermission, but there's stuff where like if you try to walk into seventh heaven as Yuffie, they they just push you back. Because she's not actually supposed to go in there. She's not supposed to actually meet Cloud. Like, 
they're they they're like trying to correct things. This timeline they shouldn't they wouldn't have interacted in the true timeline Midgar, at yeah. that point. Yeah, because you okay. I think the biggest one is Barith dies in this game, but he's not supposed to be dead, and so they like bring him back to life. It, that one looks seriously drastic of them trying to like keep the timeline on on track. That makes a lot more sense for why he gets because if I remember right, he gets stabbed by a giant sword and then is brought back, and it's like, wait. What? And when I was playing through that, originally I was like, okay, we're doing like the story thing, right? Of setting you up, feeling like there's a massive shift that's happening and then pulling the rug back out and be like, ah, now we didn't actually kill the character. We just tried to get the emotional gut punch. But seeing it wrapped in the canon of the world is a different perspective. Yeah. I So, yes, both things are true, right? They yeah. tried to scare you into thinking that some main character who's not supposed to be dead is dead, you know. Anybody who's kind of been around Final Fantasy VII at all knows that Aerith dies in the first game. Yeah, I and definitely so, did not. Oh, you is, weren't aware of that one. No, so that's the other piece, I guess, is that even being around gaming my entire life, I've somehow managed to avoid the deep conversations around the canon of Final Fantasy VII and, like, the specific story beats. So it made it interesting for this where it's like, I don't really have a frame of reference to compare who should or should not be alive or when characters may or may not be dead. Oh, that that's super interesting. That's one of those, you know, like Darth Vader yeah. type reveals <laughs> that just kind of seems to seep out into the culture, yep. uh, even if you have or haven't. I think um, there's, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I know the character name, but not like the context and why I know the name, right? You, well, I guess I should say in the English version, Aerith was initially translated as Eris. So there is a, you know, big hullabaloo around what she's actually called. I, there was a lot of translation issues, wasn't there, in the original? Yeah. Or at least just kind of like stilted translations. Yeah, it actually pretty drastically affected the way that game, or you could understand the game or not understand the game. That was actually one of the, the uh, on like my second playthrough, I got a lot more out of it. And I was also kind of pretty young the first time. That's fair. But the, the that stilted translation did, did make it kind of hard to grasp the whole context of everything that's going on there. Maybe to frame this then, so what happened in this game recognizing that this is a small slice of what the original was, right? Sure. So yeah, why don't I just give us a quick walkthrough of this game? There are... So initially the game catches up with Cloud and the rest of... Uh, with his first mission at Avalanche. They are basically terrorists, and they go bomb a power plant. power plant in the city is called a Mako Reactor. The Mako Reactors work by harnessing the life energy from the planet and turning it into energy. Sometimes it's electricity to power the cities, but also that can be refined into materia. So a bunch of stuff all happens around Mako. It's also worth mentioning that Mako can be infused into people, and that whole process is weird. Part of becoming a soldier 
involves being infused with Mako. There are a couple of soldiers throughout this game. Zack, Cloud, Sephiroth, and then a bunch of other people. There's a new soldier, Roach, who was introduced in this game. It's like Um, soldier with a capital S. Yeah, exactly. So they, they... are these these quote unquote terrorists are trying to make a political statement by bombing this power plant. They are trying to disable the power plant, and the level of destruction that happens as a part of their explosion is uh, orders of magnitude larger than what they were actually doing. Like they were trying to like blow up some computers, and they end up <laughs> blowing up several city blocks and. This is true in in both in both games. They the the game shifts down to the undercity. It turns out that Midgar Midgar is the the city where all this takes place. Is this like arcology that's built on a giant iron plate above a second city that is like the slums that all kind of congregate underneath the top plate. All the wealthy people, all of the all all the wealthy people, all of the powerful people all live on top and then they just give the dregs to to the people below so this kind of section is where you're first introduced to the people working below there's a whole extra side mission involving the red-headed character whose name i can't remember right now not jesse jesse uh, that's it yeah perfect yeah so there's a whole new side story where Jesse's father is sick and you're going and visiting them. All that's new for this game. I, I can't remember what drives you to Walmart, but that's kind of the next section of the game. In Walmart, there's a character, Don Corneo, who's kind of the mob boss running the area. He getting It's hard to get an audience with him, so there's a whole bunch of this game that involves cross-dressing. Cloud has to dress up like a, an attractive woman so that he will catch Don Corneo's eye and then the, your party mates are dressed up as well. Some of that, a lot of that is in the original game too. So it was kind of a lot of, pe- a lot of people were interested to see how much of that they would continue on with in the remake as it, it has like the kind of teasing, oh my gosh, can't believe the main character is actually wearing a dress kind of changed quite a bit in culture you know, right. over the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, when did the original come out? 23 years ago, I believe, as a recording? Oh, that's a good question. 97. So close to 25 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the next big event to happen is Avalanche goes for a, I think they go for a second bombing. They're trying to bomb another reactor. But yep. in, but this time, Shinra, which is the company running the power plants, drops an entire section of the upper plate down onto the lower, just down to the ground, crushing an entire sector, basically a slums below the plate. I do yeah. kind of want to call out that this was way more horrifying for me in the first game than it oh. is here. Interesting. Um, Why is that? In in this game, there's a lot of like, oh, we're trying to save people. We have enough time to like get people out of there. Like the way things fall, there's like cavities and things for, for people to be rescued and pulled out of. And there's like a cloud and company 
rescue a lot of people. In the first game, it's you're you're in I think it's sector six, and there where there was a door is now a wall, and everybody who's in sector seven is just dead. Like it's this giant plate just poof. And Literally like the, pancakes the slum in the first one. Yeah. So for me, the impact of that was quite a bit more severe than it was in this game. Even though it is, you know, still I'm they've killed thousands of hundreds of thousands of people in the slum in this game. It still didn't they 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 seem to have softened the blow on that quite a bit for this game. I'll cover off on that interest like from my own perspective there I'm not used to games being willing to take those shots. And so it still caught me by surprise because I kept waiting for that moment of, oh, we're going to save the day, right? Like cloud and team are going to find a way to stop this. And then when it ends up just going another direction and it's, hey, the rich and powerful can do what they want. And if that means that they just drop a part of their city onto an entire lower class, then they will do that. And that is what it is. Yeah, the other part of that that kind of bothered her that they don't talk about much is there's a bunch of rich and powerful people that also died in this event too, right? So it's the rich and powerful of the rich and powerful that got to decide that that group of rich and powerful people weren't, you know. Yeah, the top 1% was looking at the upper middle class and decided, yeah, you're also expendable as much as the lower class that is literally beneath you. Yeah. Exactly. At this point, Cloud and company break into the Shinra headquarters. Their goal is to, I believe, go confront the president of Shinra, whose name I'm forgetting. President, president Shinra. Shinra. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10. And so you're going to confront him. There's a big hullabaloo about fighting your way through the Shinra headquarters. There- there's a funny part that was in the original game that they added to this game where when you walk into the the door, they're like, oh, it's up on floor 50. And they're like, do you want to take the elevator up to floor 50 or do you want to take the stairs? And if you take the stairs, you just go in circles over and over and over. And, it, and they put the same freaking joke into this game. You just run in circles and circles and circles all the way up to the to the roof. <laughs> All right, that's very good. Yeah. It's it's one of those jokes that's a lot more funny to talk about than to actually do. <laughs> yeah. You're in it and you're like, this is... Why, okay. why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. On reflection. Uh, yeah. They they built out what, what was going on in the Shinra headquarters quite a bit more in this game. The sub-characters or the, the I don't know how you would call it, like the generals, uh, are given much more life and like who these people are, how they relate to Shinra. Make Shinra feels like a more full organization. Yeah, it feels like an enterprise. Yeah, a lot of that was missing in the first game. So that, oh, that's, that's a nice little way to kind of pad out a little bit here. Did it feel like padding or did it feel like world building? I I, I think world building is a better way to put it. I, You're right. Padding's a little more derogatory than I <laughs> really want to sound. That's fair. Um, so you get up to the roof. You think you're going to confront the president. Turns out he's all already basically been taken care of. 
and you have fights against his son, his son and his pet dog. I think that's Rufus Shinra, if I'm not mistaken, who is a freaking cool looking badass guy. And then in the process, you you also appear to go have a fight against Sephiroth. But it look seems like a lot of that is going on inside Cloud's brain. There is something about, you know, I mentioned earlier he was to become a soldier. They are infused with Banco. And there's something about the way that happened with him that that's basically fucked up. Um, and okay, now now here's where I'm going to get a little fuzzy here. Because <laughs> I believe, you know, there's all this, those clones that we talked about. The clones of Sephiroth. I believe that Cloud might be one of those also now i'm okay i i'm a little unsure of this myself Um, yeah that i feel like if there's something that i'm curious to be addressed in the latter or whatever the next installment is i'm interested if that's something that's fleshed out because if it's never explicitly stated here but it definitely seems that they share a connection that's much stronger than just being from the same program there are a lot of flashbacks to things that are happening before this game. Yeah. Whenever Cloud has a flashback to something that happened before this game, it's actually a flashback of Zack's. Zack is the one who had a relationship with Tifa as a child. Um, Wait, really? Yes. So there's there's definitely some interesting things where if you like okay. look into it, the the conversations between Tifa and Cloud, they like miss each other a lot. It's yeah. got a very spoilers for Sixth Sense. It's got a Sixth Sense vibe where you see these people kind of talking past each other a bit, and that's also intentional because basically Zach is Cloud's friend, and Zach is actually the first the quote unquote first soldier. He's the main character of the Crisis Core game where you're learning to be like this ideal soldier or he's the one who's sorry i guess sephiroth is the first soldier um zach is trying to be like sephiroth and then cloud is his buddy there's some weird shenanigans about how zach ends up or cloud ends up getting zach's memories but it's interested that interesting that zach doesn't even or gets introduced like right at the very end of this game which yeah, is about like- where to pause that and say that none of that is explained in this game whatsoever, at least yeah. from my perspective, as to any of that having like knowledge other than being like, hey, something is slightly off to your point. The sixth sense feeling definitely came up for Cloud and his flashbacks of being like, this narrator is unreliable, but I don't know why. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Yeah. I'm glad to be spoiling the Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two for you as well. <laughs> I mean, I knew what I was in for. So in the original game, Roth basically jets, takes off across the world. And in this game, you have a confrontation with Sephiroth. And it's at this point that they really kind of lay out that Th- and Aerith are playing this game on a different level than everybody else. Sephiroth has this he has this connection with Genova. they're basically clones something's going on which is a little unclear but sephiroth has uh, his underlying motivation has always been to destroy the the life force of the planet he does that by summoning meteor which is this 
giant meteor in the first game. And if I recall correctly, sacrifices or Aerith, who's had, I believe it's holy, basically uses that materia to counteract meteor. I'm there's way more to it than that, but yeah, um, fair enough. she's basically tied in with the live stream as as having been an ancient. He's coming from uh, probably off planet. Genevolus prob- probably an alien that came from off planet that's trying to destroy the planet. That's basically the high level gist of what's going on there. Yeah, I was um, curious if you ever know more about the character motivation there. Yeah, there's there's ton. I mean, Explained the entire in the first game, yeah, is okay. is what's going on. And then Advent Children happens basically after the first game, where they kind of start to explain that even though those characters are dead, they're still kind of living in the live stream and like re, or uh, you know, still touching the world, still trying to make things happen in the world so you can see both Roth actually brings himself back to life as one of the character takes over one of the characters in Advent Children whereas Aerith is just kind of pushing at things behind the scenes but it, it appears that either the this is an alternate world or like a, a remake of the world where they both still have their knowledge of what happened in the original series and the original set of games and are like trying to have at it again some of like some of what Sephiroth says at the very end of the game where he's like trying to talk Cloud into denying his destiny is super interesting I almost thought like he he's trying to tempt Cloud into taking an alternate path not going along the, the path of the original game it it's interesting that both the whispers who we talked about before as well as like sephiroth they're like allegories for the people the gamers who are asking for the seven remake where it's like oh it needs to be new but also you can't drift from canon and so like these this overlying entity that's like oh you can't drift from canon you have to stay on canon like this is kind of the 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 hold in the what do you call it? The stand-in for the community, telling them that they can't do anything wild. It's, it's got to be the same thing. And then Sephiroth is trying to like break out of that, and he, like he wants the path forward to be completely different. Do something else. Find a different way. He he kind of knows that if things keep going the same way that they will, he's going to lose. That is the result of the end of you know every every other game that's come forward yeah. in the series. That is um, not so a So he's looking for a yeah. He's looking for another way out, different path forward, and it it's not even clear that, you know, like, it's not clear that he's still looking for the destruction of the world in that conversation to me. Like, he just wants to go uh, take a different path forward, which I thought was interesting. And then, of course, Cloud immediately rejects. It seems like Cloud, it, it's unclear that Cloud even realizes that Aerith and Sephiroth have this whole other thing going on. It's interesting to hear you say that and think about Cloud is almost the character that I'm inhabiting as the person that's never played the original in that like meta way of not knowing that there's a larger game at play here that is referencing itself as well, which is truly fascinating and something more than I ever thought that was occurring within this. I thought they had taken the puzzle pieces and started to shift them around or maybe move them in different ways, right? If you play a game of chess, 
you're going to end up with different moves, but there's probably, you're going to end up with the same outcome. I didn't realize that they just straight up changed the players on the board in some ways. Yeah. Super, super interesting. Well, that is truly fascinating. And also the, the perspective that I now have on this by knowing that information is fundamentally different than the perspective I had on it 45 minutes ago, which is perfect. Truly, uh, yeah, it was like truly a credit to the development team for something that had what, 20 years of expectations when they announced the remake in, in 2015 and they're trying to come up with how do we, how do we bring this back? but also still make it a creative endeavor for the the team, I imagine, right? How do they find the motivation and figuring yeah. out a meta way it's to like, integrate the stories? Yeah, I was thinking that it's they did a great job of both honoring the original, staying pretty true to the events and the things, the characters that, that happened in the original, while still honoring all of the the canon that came before it they didn't just completely throw out and say okay we've you know this is the new canon everything else doesn't matter and if we had like you know the way they handle star wars right they're like oh now now these movies are the new canon and and these books just don't exist anymore like all that's it's closer to like the star trek kelvin timeline stuff if you're familiar where you know the characters from the show go back and change things that spin off this other timeline it's way closer to that so all the the things that happened in those other games still happened and they you know affect and changed now in this new canon but but there's a lot of yeah i think it it feels really good both as a fan and i'm hoping as your first experience too i was gonna say it the fact that they towed the line and now i have a better understanding for what I was listening to other people give feedback on this when it came out and people talking about their first playthrough and hearing the longtime fans say they were getting such enjoyment out of it and now understanding, oh, it wasn't just because the game is like fundamentally, it's a good game. The mechanics are good. The music's good. All the, everything's good, but they had given people that love to chew on this lore, something new to chew on alongside that as well, without detracting from the original conversation. Absolutely. Credit, credit to the writing team. So kind of along that path, I think, oh, I, sorry, the last part of the... Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's finish the story. The, the last part of the story, the walkthrough, is this confrontation with Sephiroth where he, like, rips open an alternate dimension and this is where things got really weird and completely different from the previous game there's a fight with sephiroth where it seems like he might be hinting at the future and you know i, I kind of read that part of why that has to happen in this game is one to to have a good ending for this game but also it kind of helps drive the motivation for trying to continue to follow Sephiroth, which was a little bit more important when you have to come back to it versus, you know, in the game, you're just continuing to follow him at that point. I, I, the, the stuff that happens in that world is so kind of abstract. It's got like this super cool anime fighting in the ether with buildings falling around you that it's got some cool visuals, but as to anything specifically going on in there, I don't really know that there's anything I would call out. Is there anything you want to 
No, I had no idea what was going on. And now hearing from you also, and also this was something that I did have some awareness of when playing through it. You don't really interact with Sephiroth at any point in this part one in the original game, right? Like he kind of pieces out for the first 10 hours or so of the original. Like there's no combat encounter or something of that nature to yeah, this it's... degree, is there? Oh, definitely not. You're not fighting Sephiroth this early in the game. Okay. There's a little bit of like similar to similar kind of like the some of the things we were seeing earlier in this game where there's like flashbacks of um, or there's some parts where like Cloud's walking through the streets and you think he's having a flashback, but also he might be talking to Sephiroth, but you turn the corner and Sephiroth's not there. Those kinds of things definitely happened quite a bit quite early in the game. You know, kind of them giving you the hint of who the bad guy is that you're supposed to be aware of. But yeah, it's the same kind of general. And even in this, it's unclear whether you actually see Sephiroth at all. I think... <laughs> There's one scene where Sephiroth steals Genova. I think that might be the only actual instance of Sephiroth in this game. Is there any tale, like tells that you're aware of for the audience or the player to to key into those moments? Or is it mostly around the context of knowing the greater story at play? I think it's the latter, unfortunately. I don't okay. If there is, I, I'm unaware of it. But Yeah, there's nothing that caught your eye as you're playing through and you're like, okay, something like they've done this thing every time that this has showed up and then this one time it didn't. Um, yeah, even I feel the, like it would be obvious if that were the case with how many of those moments like, there are. Even the Zack Cloud memories stuff is similarly, like, it'll be really interesting to see how how they kind of resolve those again. It was wild in the first game. Or in the first game, like this one piece sticks in my mind is that Sephiroth stabs Cloud, but it might be Zack. I can't remember. He stabs. And it's also unclear. I think it probably shows you both over the course of the game, but he stabs him and then Cloud picks Sephiroth up on like with the sword in his gut and tosses him into a Mako reactor. It, it just like sticks in my mind. It's like the, when they finally broke with each other. Sounds incredibly metal. That would also stick in my mind. Yeah. That was a, was a hefty Ooh. content. Yeah, I was like, I need to just have like a deep exhale of, holy shit, this thing was not what I thought it was and also is more than I thought it could be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, it I, also i'm like slightly envious of the players like yourself that had an experience 20 years ago and have followed along in some way and then came into this and got to see someone what seems like respectfully handle the the canon and give you something new without taking anything away like it's truly fucking astonishing to me Along that lines, um, I think one of the really cool characters that changed slightly was Aerith. Because she kind of has this extra, extra sensory, extra worldly perception of the things that are going on, it, for the first time, kind of made her background, her distinctness as a, an ancient. It's like she's an entirely different species of 
person that's you know that you're interacting with and it doesn't i don't recall it coming through very strongly in the first game it just seemed like oh that's just something you know about her but here it kind of or you know you're you kind of know that she's tied in somehow with the planet, but she doesn't have any special powers. She doesn't have any special insights. She doesn't have anything that might make her seem any any crazy or wild or different. Yeah. No, she doesn't um, come off as like a god, right? And that's almost the feeling that I got from understanding more about her and being like, hey, there's, she's one of a race of people that don't exist anymore. It's like, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. That that changes the conversation here. Contextualized her as being way cooler, way more powerful, like you said, than she kind of came off in, in the first game, which I thought was super, super cool. Yeah, it felt to me, again, my like first interaction, I was like, oh, this is someone that's quite possibly the most important character within the game. And that... That's a different interaction, especially her tie to the world and how I didn't realize how much of an environmental conversation this game existed with them. So, like, she she can be seen on the... T like, she starts at the very beginning of the first game up topside in... The city whose name Midgar? I just forgot. Midgar, thank you. Yeah, she starts at the top of Midgar and she's, like, inspecting a pipe that's burst. And there's Mako running through the pipe and she can like pull the Mako out and kind of turn it into life. Like that her connection with the energy as, you know, is shown very early on. The kind of gist that I got as her character in the first game was she was like super innocent and naive and like a good scene is where cloud defends her against some soldiers looking for her in the church um, oh yeah in the first game or it goes pretty similarly in in both games but in the first game it feels like she's just like naively saying oh this guy is going to defend me because you know she just like Picks, picks her knight, and this is the guy who's going to defend me against you guys. Damsel um, in distress. Yeah, very naive damsel. In this one, because she like knows what's going on, she has some foresight, it almost seems like manipulative, like she's playing the, the crowd. She She's like using cloud in that scene. So, you know, just that, that tiny little tweak in the context can make what's going on feel pretty drastically different as far as characterizations goes. Yeah, it changes her from being a a person that needs rescued to one that has control. And yeah, with, all within a very subtle shuttle shift. Is a question about Aerith and kind of, I guess, Sephiroth more in general. Is there an explanation of why he wants to destroy the world that's presented within the remake or the broader, I guess, original as well that I was, I was missing as far as like, why does he have such motivation and also to destroy Aerith? Um, so he, so two parts. One is, I think that generally, so 
there is definitely talk of a prophecy in the first game that yeah. there's some evil force coming from outside the planet that's going to come and destroy the planet. It seems like Genova is that alien force that is coming to destroy the planet. It seems like she is, I'm going to mess a bunch of this up, but it yeah. seems like she's basically been taken care of when the game starts. Like maybe the ancients killed her or dismembered her or something, but it's actually Shinra that is going through this whole cloning process that is what actually brings her back to power to be able to to reattack the live stream. You talked about why Sephiroth has his antagonist against Aerith specifically, and it has something to do with how he also is tied in with the live stream. I think it's because of the way he was both Geneva, who's trying to destroy the live stream, but then he was, you know, a soldier that was infused with Mako, and so he's basically been tied into the live stream in some way, similar to the way that Cloud and the other soldiers are as well. I believe that's where they get some of their magic abilities, although there's a lot of, like, fast and loose stuff going on with that in this game, so, you know, take it here or there. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I'm curious what you thought about the Turks. First off, do you know who the Turks are? As I go back to my notes, I'm like, who are the Turks? Uh, no, I'm... Hold, please. Oh, Reno and Rude, right? Yeah, there's the main two Turks in this game. Actually, I was going to call it out. I, I think I mentioned it earlier. There was a mobile phone game called Before Crisis, which actually was an... I bring it up because it's kind of referenced in Intermission as well. But there was a big battle between Shinra and Wutai. Um, okay. They're basically Shinra defeats Wutai. Um, Wutai ends up being like this little village that you come across shortly after this part of the game in the first game. But there's this big conflict and, and they just crush them because they have the technology to do so. But the Turks are these guys that wear suits. They're always looking really good, but they're kind of this mercenary force that works for, mostly works for Shinra. Yeah. Um, and they're all, yeah, I, I just love their style, how there's, they're both like really Ridiculous. put together. Oh, all right. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, they, to me, they were both ridiculous. Like the clear juxtaposition between the two of them whenever they showed up also of like, the very brash and like obnoxious and absurd Reno and then Rude's just like sitting on the other side, just like, can we just handle our business? And also I need to make sure my sunglasses look really good at all times. They just almost, love their suits. They just yeah, look freaking some suave motherfuckers the whole time. Suave motherfuckers that it also feels like they're always there to like fuck with you but that they don't actually have investment in truly defeating you like in that classic yes, villain exactly. way of like we're gonna show up and then every time that we have a chance to really take you out not gonna take that opportunity my mission was to stop you from doing this i can yeah. stop you from doing this by keeping you over there or killing you it's kind of your choice right <laughs> right exactly and it's like i'm gonna keep stopping you but also end up kind of flipping on them and like no i was really trying to kill you like wink wink nudge nudge there's a, a long running thing where reno's got a crush on tifa i don't know if you noticed that at all in this game but i think that's really fun that they have continued that across the first game it's kind of called out in advent children too they're they're both freaking badasses in advent children as well um, okay 
and then um so if i re vaguely recall advent children's story the turks there end up being three new young turks and those three young turks infuse themselves with mako and end up getting corrupted by sephiroth and that's kind of how that story goes that makes more sense as well i wanted to call out the turks were freaking cool still cool it's still um, yeah, still very cool do you recall how the final battle with them goes i was trying to remember how, how, where reno and rude left off and if they'll be in the next one Oh, I'm sure they'll be in the next one. These guys okay. never go away. Never, never go away. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. They're just the the constant antagonist that just shows up just to kind of make your day kind of crappy and then bounce yeah. out. Okay. Sometimes antagonists, sometimes, you know, what, what do you call it? Unfortunate allies, strange yeah. bedfellows kind of thing. Just kind of depends on who's who's paying them and what their mission is at any point in time. They're just kind of their own wild cards. They're pretty cool. Got um, it. I, I, I remember the part where, like, shortly before they drop the Sector 7 plate, that, like, their mission is to make sure that the plate drops, and so they, like, hold you off from stopping the computer, stopping the, the, the bomb from going off and dropping the plate, and they take off in a helicopter after that, and I think they might be in the helicopter with Rufus Shinra right at the very end. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I'm uncertain of that one. Yeah, I'm sure our listeners will be enjoying picking apart the little inconsistencies that we have from our memories. Yeah. So Red 13 was a playable character in the first game, and I think he's playable for like five minutes or something in this game as well. I loved Red 13. Like, that was a character, I don't even know why specifically, but just seeing him show up and how he interacts is like a character that out of anyone in the game, I was like, I want to know more about him and his backstory and why he was being held captive and just kind of where his interaction with the broader world takes him. Yeah, he in the first game is another lab experiment. And I think Aerith might actually be a lab experiment as well. It's unclear to me... But he has some tie to the ancients. It's possible he is part ancient as well. For all I know, he could be as much ancient as Aerith is. And it's super interesting to see that in this game, he actually is aware of the multiple timelines as well. Of course he is. Yeah. And he calls it out more specifically than anybody else, partly because you can look at anything he's saying as being like wild and crazy and nonsensical. But it ends up being the most like aware contextually you get the most context about the wider relationship between the two games from him than almost any other character in the game got it so he'll be a broader character is he explored more throughout the rest of final fantasy 7 or does he kind I of don't bounce away him so he was definitely he was a playable character through the whole first game I don't know if he shows up, like he shows up in like, I want to say cutscenes for for Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, but yeah, it's a movie, so cutscene doesn't quite make sense. Right. Okay. I, so so yeah, Red Thirteen was playable throughout the first game. I don't recall that he shows up in. I don't know that he shows up anywhere else. I know that there are like pictures of him like running through fields in Advent Children, something like that. So, but I'm I'm curious to know. I'm curious to know more too. He seemed like a 
he was just weird enough that there wasn't a lot done with him. Yeah, I'm curious if if he'll be one of the characters that just gets a broader backstory painted for him, that the benefit of these games kind of being expanded upon has given more space for a lot of the side characters to to have their own personality. And again, this is my part of speculation, but hearing a lot of people talk about even Barrett and Tifa and Biggs, Wedge, Jesse, so on, like all of them having a an actual personality as opposed to just kind of a party member. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember. It's probably better just to look it up, but it will... I think you might be interested to know that. Oh, shit. What's her name from Integrate? Uh, oh, Yuffie. Yeah. Yuffie is a completely missable character in Final Fantasy VII. That's um, a blast. Okay. If you don't go to the right area, if you don't get in a fight in the right part of the world, you will just miss her. You can go the entire game without without her joining the party. That's fun. So that's, that's yeah. an interesting perspective on them taking her to expand her into her own like spotlighted experience, right? Yeah. And then they go out of their way to show you that she and Cloud never meet. I'm actually surprised that she met Tifa and Barrett. They kind of had to have a cameo, I suppose, in this game. She never meets them per se as much as she sees them from afar. Because like she only interacts with, I think, Wedge and Jesse. she can actually like talk to. But Tifa and Barrett... She just kind of sees from afar and they're like, oh, that's the the avalanche crew. Which feels like it was pretty intentional that they wouldn't. Now, knowing the rest of the continuity stuff, it feels very intentional that they didn't actually interact in person. I think it's really weird. They kept calling them the splinter cell. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, another little Easter egg thing. I don't know if you caught it, but they went out of their way to say the words... Teenage, mutant, ninja, and turtle. <laughs> like, uh, I get you. I see what right. you're doing. Like, why are we talking about her being a mutant? Why are we talking about her being teenage? Okay, right. I get it now. Talking about her being a ninja? Okay. And then the turtle bar as well? Yeah. Well, we'll probably get into to Yuffie's story here shortly. Or do you want to pivot and kind of give an overview of what intermission looked like, and then we can talk about some of the broader combat music other things that kind of across both games would you mind trying to give a explanation of intermission oh man i would do my best sir so intermission starts off with yuffie dropping down into the slums and doing a true hero moment of a landing and just straight telling the camera who she is and what her mission is, which is to break into Shinra HQ, sounding familiar, and steal materia that they are creating that is, you know, the most powerful materia that can be created, essentially. And she's from the Wutai government, I believe, and is there to to infiltrate, and that's what she does. She's a materia hunter. And to do so, she meets up with some other kind of Wu-Tai agents and a guy named Sonnen to try and determine kind of how to get in and infiltrate and 
you know, steal the, the materia. And then throughout that experience, there's some interactions that you mentioned as far as meeting up with some of the other characters that are in the slums. She also you know, has to find a guy named Zijay, I think, or ZJ, something like that, to to get the information to get into Shinra HQ. It felt like a very cowboy bebop chase to try and capture him. And then she also, once they get into it, it's kind of revealed that Shinra is aware that they're there the whole time and kind of start screwing with them to try and get them to go down different paths and just kind of making them their little play thing. Like, oh, it's cute. These little teenagers are trying to get in here and do something. And then after exploring kind of Shinra HQ and getting through a little bit further of it, you interact with Scarlet, who's like the director of security, who's kind of leading you along, have a battle with her. And then there's a guy named Nero, who... Total badass. Comes out of nowhere, right? Yeah. Very, very curious to know more about who the F Nero is and what his interaction from the original game is. But he's like perceived to be a super elite soldier, like utilizing darkness to as his combat ability and like using death as a way to take over others. Um, so he ends up battling you and after you defeat him or what you think you defeat him, he stabs Sonnen and Sonnen uses his last kind of strength to ensure that Yuffie can escape. And then Nero kind of slowly kills him and vanishes back into the darkness. Um, yeah. And then, oh, and then it ends with Sector 7 getting demolished. So apparently the timeline is like occurring somewhere while the playthrough that you're having a Final Fantasy VII is occurring, which was really interesting. Yeah, pretty good walkthrough. So there was a second character in Final Seven who is completely admissible. His name is Vincent Valentine. Okay. Vincent Valentine is probably a vampire. <laughs> sure, why not? I'm, I'm, you, we're already here. You find him in a casket and apparently he's been sleeping in that casket for like a hundred years because he got tired of living basically and if you just don't go to that house you don't find that casket in the first game he just doesn't become a member of your party completely missable he actually had the first he was the main character in the first final fantasy 7 sequel spin-off which was called final fantasy 7 the dirge of cerberus i only played a couple of hours of this game. It was a first-person shooter played from Vincent's what? point of view. Yeah, exactly. What? Okay. I remember the controls being rough at the time. Because Hard I to was imagine. Trying to do first-person shootery things on a is either a PS1 or PS2. Two game came out yeah. in 2006. It was rough for me, but um, Nero is uh, one of the big bads, one of the sub-bosses from Dirge of Cerberus. So it was a little bit cool to see that, oh, yes, like we were talking about earlier, they are really are referencing, honoring all of the other pieces of all of the other games, not just the first game, but Crisis Core, through Z primarily through Zack, although Zack is mentioned in the first game as well. But yeah, so that's 
where Nero and I think Weiss too. Let me just look just so I can remember. Yeah. Uh, Weiss also was in Dirge of Cerberus, although it looks like he showed up in Crisis Core too. But yeah. So I was only, I was not very aware of like who the heck these two guys were that show up at the end of this game. But, you know, going back and looking and saying, yeah, this is how they actually fit in. I'm even more excited about that. They have the same feel of an ending as the, the original game where you're like, oh, Zach, who the hell is this guy? Why is, uh, I, mean, <laughs> I I couldn't remember his name, but I knew exactly the character. Like, oh my god, it's him because it's he's supposed to be like just like Cloud, but with black hair. Yep. And then they they make him a more fully realized character as as time goes, at games and other things go on. But yeah, yeah, and that I guess making characters more fully realized. There was like a nice moment where Sonnen, who I kind of thought was just a side character that was along for the journey with you, like was just you know, random Wu-Tai guy number one, and then getting a little bit of backstory that like his sister is dead and was murdered by the robots that Scarlet had created. And that was kind of his motivation was a nice little, okay, it's a nice little moment. So he, this is his oh, first God, you're going to, okay. All right. I was like, please don't blow my mind anymore. So he, yeah. <laughs> He was actually in the book. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this was Sonnen's first game. I was actually curious about that as well because oh. they build him up like he should be, you know, because they stick him in the party for half the game. I think mostly just to give it weight when they kill him. But Absolutely. Was there anything additional from the Yuffie kind of intermission that you felt had interaction with the original Final Fantasy VII or was this really kind of a nice place for them to go and create and play with a character that, like you said, could have been missable in FF7 and you, like, this is kind of them having a bit more freedom to interact in the world without having to be like, we need to worry about the continuity and all the other pieces. Yeah, I don't think there was anything. It was a little more freeing, like you mentioned. She never, you you can't even get her this early in the game. The way the original game broke down Everything that happened in, in Midgar happened on the first CD, compact disc. Yeah. And you literally had to change compact discs and then couldn't go back into Midgar because that all that content wasn't loaded anymore. It was like physically, this is the rest of the game now. And she was not available in in that on that first disc. She just wasn't even gettable until the second disc. So the idea that she was in Midgar at all, a, a little bit of like retconny, like... I guess yeah. she could have been there. There's nothing that said she wasn't, but yeah, that one's a little, you know, classic. Oh, if we had just looked, turned left instead of right, we would have seen her right there the whole time. Especially with her also breaking into Shenra HQ. It's yeah. like, <laughs> okay, sure. Like Scarlet just never mentions her either way, yeah. right? Right. Like, oh, we just, at least I can't recall there would be a moment of, hey, we had like a Wu-Tai agent try and break in you know, recently or something like that, right? It's just like, yeah. okay. That's like slightly interesting here with regards to just some of the other, like her humming the theme. Like there's like a couple little nods that are cute. Yeah, let's let's go back to the the little things at the end, but I think we should, we should talk about the game yeah. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what are we, an hour in? Maybe we should talk about the game. Hour 16, yeah, exactly. Uh, where do you want to start with the game? 
oh yeah, the the thing that we interacted with for like 40 hours. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious probably most about your experience with the combat and the mechanics there, obviously a dramatic departure from the original being a pure turn-based kind of strategy game and so I think moving. there is an option, although it's like everybody's kind of admits it's the wrong option, but there is an option to play this game turn-based. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that's one of the classic. So I guess we're even starting there then. How did you, how did you play the game and did you try and utilize some of the techniques you previously did in the original or did you kind of meet this on its own terms? Um, I feel like a little bit of both. This has definitely been the way that Final Fantasy games and also Kingdom Hearts games, the blood between the two is pretty strong. I'm not sure if you've played much Kingdom Hearts, but I think it's, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's Tetsuma, Tetsuwa, the the main guy, the main director for this, just came off of Kingdom Hearts 3. That series also plays a bunch with pulling in all of the Final Fantasy characters from across the all the, the Final Fantasy games. But this kind of like live battle system where you're running around and then you also have a command list to go do things has been pretty common for all of Kingdom Hearts. But then the last couple of Final Fantasies has also been feeling the same. I've been playing a little bit of Final Fantasy 13 lately and it that combat system, you can see it like edging edge closer and closer to that as the time goes on. So I was... I was okay with it. I was, I do, at at least initially, I was kind of missing the more tactically minded approach to the first game. It always kind of had the same, if I recall correctly, it still had the, maybe I'm thinking I'm 10. Let me just scratch that. (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I have definitely seen that all of the Final Fantasy games and Kingdom Hearts games have kind of been pushing towards a style like this. So while... You know, I was a little bummed that they changed it so drastically from the original. I think it was the right choice. It, it ended up making the game kind of more fun to play that way. Yeah, it's interesting for me coming into this, right? I think my last experience with Final Fantasy is probably 10-2. Maybe I played a little bit of like Final Fantasy 12 um, or Final Fantasy 13 2. Is that it? Yeah. Love, love the naming conventions. Thank you, Square. But this game was like legitimately fun to play for me. And that's not something I was expecting to have out of a Final Fantasy game because that sort of kind of strategy of... The actual playing part. Yeah, the actual playing part is something that I was very curious if it would hook me or if it would be too much of like, okay, I have to be managing the abilities and spells and all that and your party members and then also moving around in the space of the battle and doing combat directly but they found like the perfect way to balance all those things especially with a little bit of the slowdown to be able to be like oh okay i can focus more on just being a brawler and then utilize the other combat mechanics to be more strategic with like doing analyzing of them and choosing weak points and things of that nature too did you play back the new game plus hard mode at all i did not um and i i definitely wasn't trying to find difficulty in the combat either i was very much i want this to be i don't want to worry about dying was essentially my motto kind of throughout it i wanted to be able to 
enjoy the story with the combat as a backing as opposed to the combat being forefront and the story being behind it. As far as I know, they won't even let you try hard mode until after your you new game plus. I so think I, right. I think that Did you go back to it? I played it a bit. I think there are I think there you know, the game is eighteen chapters. I think I probably got back through chapter four or five, something like that, on okay. hard mode. I I bring it up in this context because there are things like dodging and being really specific about how you hit. One of the best characters to play this game as a game is actually Tifa because she has a lot of mobility. She can jump in, back in and out. She can have different elemental and 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 like by the time you're using her, it can get really crazy. But it's it's interesting like. As you start to like need to avoid things and start playing on that next higher level, Tifa all of a sudden becomes like the shining character who actually feels like she's the one that this game was built for, which I think is kind of funny. That is funny. That's interesting. And on that, how far did you dive into being particular about the materia that you were slotting in, as well as like the core weapon upgrades. Did you mess a lot with kind of the star map of doing the upgrades or did you kind of set it on auto for either attack, defense or balanced? So you reminded me about the material. I kind of wanted to call that out. Uh, yeah. That the material system is very similar, very, very similar to the first game. Um, okay. The, I think, unless I'm... Unless I'm mistaking something, one of the things that you could do in the original game that you can't do here is that when you're when you maxed out a materia, it's split into two. So then you could continue building or like restart your building of the materia. So there was a little bit more to that system there, mostly so you could yeah, because you had more characters, more more it was just designed as a longer experience although i think i think we looked this up and the how long to beat on final fantasy 7 and final fantasy 7 remake are actually pretty close to each other it's a, it's kind of absurd <laughs> yeah i think that's funny then the weapon upgrade i do not think there was an analog to that in the original game always kind of like building out my characters and so i tried to engage that system as much as i can although i think kind of at the end of the day it doesn't really feel like it was worth it too much in this game. I think you're right. Probably sticking it on auto probably would have been a better use of my time. I I did what you started with where I had originally began to be like, oh, cool, I can get very specific with making this the way I want to play it. And then started to notice there wasn't much differentiation. And then the amount of upgrades happening and as I started to collect more weapons and think about going through that process i was like all right now i'm i know i'm a offensive minded player like i'm gonna set it to auto and like that's a quality of life in an rpg that to me helped me like stick through the game also right like that was one of those things where i'm like thank you for not making me do this because that tedium may have like you know over 30 40 hours would have grinded me down pretty far so appreciate that yeah i saw some stuff where there's like there are optimal builds for each of the weapons and then specific some specific weapons depending on what you're doing and all of a sudden it, it starts mattering a lot more when you start playing on hard that that's it, what i was a little yeah there's i could see that the depth could exist there and i appreciate that it feels like they gave room for both of those things to exist and i guess similar to the story right like they found a way to balance 
if you want to be that hardcore player, then we're going to give you an opportunity. But also if you want to kind of come along for the ride, like we're going to still be fun. I had a tra uh, transition and I forgot what it was. <laughs> so I don't know that I have a great transition, um, but I <laughs> do want to talk next about one of probably my biggest gripe with the game, which... The first one in the podcast over an hour in. Love it. Yeah. It's funny because I appreciate it while also thinking it wasn't the right answer. And that's the side mission structure in this game. Oh, interesting. Um, there's a bunch of times where you like go through story, you go through story, and then you're dropped into a, like a mini open world. And there's all yeah. these side quests. And I don't know if you're like me, but I felt compelled to go and resolve almost all those side quests before moving on. Absolutely. Yeah. It... it I... I like the idea because it kind of gave, it did the world building thing. There's a lot more going on here. I can see the world. I'm backtracking. So I feel like this world becomes an actual place, not just a corridor that I'm running down. So like it did some things positively, but as far as the pace of the game, it just, every time you get dropped into one of those, like you're, it feels like your progression in the story just hits a brick wall and you're just, okay, now I'm going to spend the next three hours grinding outside missions before I can continue with this game. It was the one point in a game for me, and I'm glad you brought it up, that I was like, oh, this is the filler content. This is the content to ensure that this game has enough game to, you know, make people happy that when they look at it and hear oh, it's like an RPG. How many hours is it? They can be like, it's 40. And it's like, well, okay. Without yeah, diving. The same way. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. On the flip side of that, though, is that while I had that feeling heading into them, there was an interaction with the other characters. I think Marlene was one of them within the city that I started to just get a better understanding of and like appreciated our interactions. And Did you mean Marlene or Marley? Because they're two different characters. Oh, God. Who's the woman that runs the apartment building? That, that's Marley. Marley. Okay. But, like, Mar her just... Marlene is Barrett's daughter. That's right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Very, very different. But that those were, like, some of the moments of being able to, to just know a little bit more about them in the world that I actually thought was additive. And so it's a little hard for me to separate the grind of the side missions versus that. But for better and for worse, they didn't feel like they stuck around too long. If there was one more section of them, I would have probably been like, all right, come on, y'all. But it was like when I finished the second or maybe third set of them, wherever the th the kind of last set of them was, it was like, okay, great. We're, we're done with that. Hopefully no more kind of artificial blockers and we can have like a straight shot to the ending. Yeah, there's, I think that contributes a bit to, there's a, like, in, in addition to it just hitting a brick wall, there's a weird part about like, at least on the initial playthrough, it's unclear when or if you're going to be able to come back. Do I, do I have to do these things because I won't be able to proceed? And what is the thing that is going to make me proceed? Yeah, um, what's the unlocking, like, mission that gets you to go on with your story? Yeah. What, what, 
what unlocks it, but also what prevents me from coming back here. Like there, there was so much ambiguity in the initial playthrough around those things that it made you made me really want to finish everything because I never knew at any particular point whether I could come back. Those kinds of things. Oh, we're the same person. Yeah, absolutely. And interacted with the same way. And I was like, oh, there's all these, there's like six different open world items that I can do. I need to go do all of them to understand what's happening here. Right. And it's the other thing that games do. And this is not a critique just purely for Final Fantasy VII, but you have this story that is building on itself and has like an urgency of we're going to drop a plate on like an entire part of the population and then we're gonna stop and like go help children find random things and it's like i really feel like yes that's good but we should probably be focusing on the main mission and it's always a dissonance that kind of rubs me the wrong way whenever you have those like hard like stops like when there's an intergalactic gothic horror going to destroy the entire galaxy and then you stop to help a elcor do some dating yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. It's like, all right, sure. Th those pacing on reflection of the game also like stand out as just being these like, you know, pauses. Yeah, it's funny because, like I said, as much as I think it killed the pacing of the game, as a game, I'm not a fan. As a nostalgic player of Final Fantasy VII, like there's a lot of those times where I, like it was a, a time where I could just sit and revel in the world and look at all of the, how much of this city they built and how much, like I have the Final Fantasy VII Ultimanium, but like the graffiti, the posters, like there's entire worlds and backstories and like there there's a whole section with the honeybee and like how all these characters all play a part and like you'll just, you can walk by them and not not even realize the a crazy amount of work and detail that is going on in those in that world all all over the place all all the time and to that point though it is additive even for someone that doesn't have the nostalgia of just seeing oh there's like school and like people live here right and it helps you build a little bit of an attachment to the slums and it's not like oh it's just this area down here it's like oh no there's people struggling and these are some of the ways that they're interacting or trying to just get by and if you would have just to your point corridor run through it and been like yep there's the people that live in shambles down here great i think it would have been detrimental but it's like where's that balance yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Where is the balance? I think the thing that kind of I haven't said enough that I really do need to call out is that this is an absolutely beautiful game. Top to bottom, whether you're talking character design, menus, building design, atmosphere, the way everything interacts with each other, the the the, the technology from the trains to the power plants to the the trees and just the dirt and grime all over the the lower city. I think that this is just a spectacularly beautiful game. I have no disagreement. I was like, I'm not going to be the dissenting voice on this podcast, but 
the production values across the entire game are truly like when you say AAA, this is what that means. This is at that level where I'm thinking about the naughty dogs of the world of like, they've taken the time to create the individual objects, like the amount of time, energy, resources to build this thing is truly phenomenal. And I was playing even on like the PS4 version and not even playing through some of the upgrades that they've done as the, the re-release on the newer gen consoles. And it would still look just phenomenal and runs incredible. And I, I, I was truly shocked at how well everything runs and looks, especially for something that was on the last gen consoles at this point. And not only that, but like the music is fantastic. And I know Final Fantasies are known for their music, but just the score and the way that it interacts with the wider world. Bliss. There were a couple of times, or I was thinking about that as I was replaying Intermission. There's a couple of the Final Fantasy, I think it's the Midgard theme, maybe. But it's kind of got this yearning, longing sound to it that always kind of made me feel a little melancholy. Like a little, mm. little bit about thinking about the past all the time. Living in a world that like has had its day it's it's run down and gone by even in in the in midgar where things are still are you know new and shiny there's still like rust and broken pipes and and things still already breaking down it's like a world that's past its time the music just kind of leads to that feeling i think when you're looking at it also it's those points that are putting kind of a more poignant view on the society that's created there also that this is all it's all just for show right like everything that's up front and presented to you while it may look beautiful doesn't have anything behind it and even the city that's stacked on top of the slums and it's like oh all of these things have been created to have the veneer of posterity and in reality everyone's doing the same actions, right? But none of that would have been able to be translated if it weren't for the art and the design of the world that's created. So you can see that those moments are interjected between one another or opposed to one another, I suppose. Okay, so one of the things that I wanted to share with you is this picture, which I'll send to Nate to have in the podcast notes. Can you tell us what you see there? I'm looking at it. Probably not the right link. Shenra Final Fantasy X-2. That's the one. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at a boy wearing like a a crazy kind of garment. What am I, what am I looking at? So he's a, a, this is a character from Final Fantasy X-2. He's a race called the Albed, which is these guys who basically live in these gas masks. His name is Shinra, which... Very, very had, on point. Okay. So 10 obviously came out after 7, but there was always kind of this... This character came out and it kind of as a nod to, hey, look, maybe these are in the same world. And then to send you this picture. Killing the pace of the podcast here, but I think this is cool enough to talk about anyway. So as you are going through the Shinra headquarters building, there is this picture of the founders. And can you describe what you see in the middle of that picture of the founders there? Oh, man. 
Yes. So within this photo, it's Cloud kind of standing in a warehouse and he's looking at an old timey kind of, you know, black and white photo. And dead center of this is a bunch of people that are in kind of factory suits and then someone that's in a, a nice suit and tie wearing a gas mask. This is the strongest indication so far that these two games probably take place in the same world. That's... All right, sure. Hundreds of years after the events of Final Fantasy Ten. Yep, the gas mask is very similar, or at least themed. I mean, I guess gas masks kind of all kind of look the same, but there's definitely... Like the way that it's around his mouth and things of that nature echoes the character design in the Final Fantasy X image very well. That's a fascinating little connection. And of course, the character's name was Shinro. Yeah, um, which is... <laughs> yeah. It's so on point that it feels about right. Yeah. Super cool. I, I thought that was worth calling out. A friend of mine actually called that out on the very first episode of this podcast which we did on final fantasy 10 i love that so at one point you wanted you threw out this question is this game political is that something you want to come back to <laughs> i certainly do actually i am curious about the resonance of this game in the 90s when it was created right and what its commentary is and how incredibly clear its commentary is right now at this point in life and how resonant that is and i'm glad that we're having this conversation now after talking about the game and the story because the overall themes do not appear to have shifted significantly between the original and remake but i was like oh i didn't like this is like a like these guys are eco-terrorists for lack of a better term fighting against corporations that are using the planet's resources for greed and creating a super class of rich and powerful that get to live by their own rules and damned be the world if everyone else goes down as long as they can stay on top. I think that description is completely perfect. So we're in agreement. This is not a political game, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has nothing to say about the wider world abound. Yeah. I was like, I think it was within the first, like however long the first, like 30 minutes, I was just like, wait, it, are we in, I guess this is happening. I guess we're just playing a, a, definitely like kind of liberal leaning game that's going to take swings at all of these topics and I, I was fucking here for it but i i didn't realize how direct the correlation would be and how much of a statement it would be actually trying to make i wonder if this game was created now if the bombings would still be part of it mm. or if they would have utilized, I don't, I don't know. I'm probably have two minds there because you started to reference, you know, maybe did they pull back on dropping, you know, the city and then being like, oh, we can save people and there's wreckage here. But on the flip side of that, I'm like, this game was created before 9-11, 2001 and the remake, obviously thereafter. 
And what I saw in some of those scenes was reminiscent of the aftermath of 9-11 of like, oh, here's a decimated attack that, you know, dropped buildings and there was, you know, mangled wreckage that people could crawl out of. And that's kind of what struck me in the, my first playthrough here and probably why it was, it still resonated with me even stronger. I feel like... <clears throat> The, this is 25 years of, of memory, so I'm sure I'm screwing up another part of this. But I don't think that there was as clear of a... Like in the first game, I think when they blew up the power plant, they just blew up the power plant, and that's the thing that happened. In this game, they call out that the, the super evil corporation is amplifying their explosions to make them look worse which you know i i'm i don't know from it you know asking your question does it does this have a political statement or all of a sudden that kind of seems to undercut like it doesn't seem like you're treating both positions fairly when you start saying oh here's an evil guy doing evil things so there's a little bit of that to me but also it kind of offends the impact of the things that Avalanche is doing, right? They, I, as far as I can remember, in that first game, they blow up that reactor. It is their fault. They take responsibility for the blowing up that reactor. There might be some Shinra employees in that reactor who die, but it, in this game, it like it blows up and it takes out city streets and all kinds of. And there's all kinds of extra collateral, but they blame that collateral on, oh, Shinra, the bad guy, is the, is the one who, who did this. Yeah, it feels very clear that they took the approach of, hey, our plan, and if they would have stayed out of the way, like our plan would have just, to your point, blown up some computers and stopped the reactor from functioning. But because the evil guys saw an opportunity here to paint us in a bad light, like, they chose to make it worse and they chose to cause the collateral damage, right? So it makes it much more black and white of, well, if they would have just stayed out of the way, then we would have just blown up the small kind of reactor control unit and nothing else would have happened. And instead it's like, oh no, evil guys created way worse scenarios so they could use that as propaganda within the right-wing media, like extremism to, to point towards this. And for to your point, it makes it much clearer of like, here's good, here's bad. You were on the good side. These guys are evil. Yeah, I think the dropping Sector 7 always was a little, like I said, in the first game, it's even a, a emotionally a bigger deal. Like there's just, all these people are just dead and gone. That, that, act always seemed like they do that so that they can also pin that on avalanche that one always seemed particularly like just amplifying the reactor explosions you could be like oh that's like them trying to twist the story to better suit their narrative right yeah. whereas the dropping the plate one that one just feels like completely sinister and over the top and and out of I can't in my mind imagine a good person with a different set of 
with a different context making that choice that's the one thing that's just like i don't know that's the one that it removes their it removes the possibility of it being like oh we see the world differently to it just being this is just evil like there is no more gray area of oh you have your own reasons and methods and things and like i i should have compassion to maybe try and understand where you're coming from to cool like that there is no there is no more gray area to even try and uh, like work within yeah i i think if anything i'd wish they had changed that a bit cuz even sephiroth in this game who's like just built up as the the antagonist all along all the, through several games even he comes off as like you know you can see it as oh he's this alien fighting for his his interests but right. even he is like i know this is going to go badly let's try and find another path let's go a different direction let's try and figure out and he gets kind of railroaded into following the same path but like yeah that i guess it's just that one choice from i guess it's president Sinra who dies in this game so it's it's not a long impactful choice and who knows where the next game goes which should be wild yeah i'm very very curious but that is a good point like comparing to sephiroth is a, a great example that i hadn't thought about but his concerns seem so much larger than like the pettiness of a man concerned with money, right? That you're like, oh, okay. Like to your point earlier mentioning, like he's operating on a different plane and like, there's something else to be talked about there where president Shenra is just bad. And you're like, okay, like kind of one note. Oh, I probably could have thrown this in earlier when we were talking about the pacing of the side missions, but while playing through Intermission, there was this whole Fort Condor class of clash of clans, like I, I guess, yeah, something similar in that that realm. A a tabletop battle game where you're sending different character classes at towers on the opposing team, and if you take their main tower or have done the most damage by the end of it, then you win. I think it's probably the best description I got. Which does does every game need a, a board game these days? It feels like since I don't know, was it Gwent that kind of started this off within The Witcher? So that was a big one, but yeah. Final Fantasy Nine had a card game. Final Fantasy Ten had the Blitzball. Oh god, that's um, right, yeah. Seven had there's a whole golden spear sphere place that had like Chocobo racing and a whole bunch of other, what, not lottery, what do you call it? Uh, oh, gambling. Gambling like establishment. Casino, yeah. yeah. Like there's, there's been a lot of this in the, and even like the, there was a mini game, which I think <laughs> showed up here or in the remake. I can't remember quite specifically, but. It does feel like the board game aesthetic is like the current in thing for most recent games also. Like Horizon Forbidden West had a, a board game mini game within the world that's like that's just kind of been been everywhere but without saying that did you enjoy it hmm i played it all yeah I think I got did all you the play characters. all of the characters yeah did you go up through all the different ranks yeah i beat the the kid with the the, the mom i 
I enjoyed. I, I liked that I did it. Oh. I don't think it was detailed or like in depth enough for me to like really sink my teeth into it. But I couldn't stop doing it. So <laughs> I had the same complaint. It's like it was good enough. I just wish it hadn't killed the pace of the game like the other side missions. I I wrote down in my notes. I was like. Is this a Fort Condor game? Like, is the point of this intermission to to go win all the Fort Condor missions? I was like, is that the is that like the literal point of the expansion? I and, thought the same thing at one point. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh no, this is kind of its own separate thing. And I also wrote, fuck, this is kind of fun. Like, usually these things I like write off and I'm like, all right, let's do whatever the bare minimum of this is to get forward. But I was like, to your point, it's not, it's not deep enough to inspire like, hey, this should be it spun off into its own thing and I will pay money for it. But it was, it had enough to it that I was engaged by them. You played the last Assassin's Creed, right? Yeah. They have a, a game where you're God, rolling right. dice. Valhalla has, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, Something similar, right? Yeah. I was trying to remember what it was called, but yes, you're, that is another game that has one of these. Yeah. It's it's weird in that, like, it's got interesting game design concerns, right? Yeah. You, like, if you're building that kind of game in the real world, you want both characters to come in with roughly the same level of chances of winning. If you're building out your deck to be, you know, say we're playing a game of Magic, right? You can put... Whatever your 60 cards are in your deck, but you basically need a 60-card deck to, to show up for, right? And we come in roughly on a level playing field, even if your cards are way better or way more synchronized or whatever. Um, and then when it is in the context of a game like this, like you, you want to allow the character to build up and just be able to like destroy people or like build up to a tougher challenge. So you're you're wanting to allow the character to come in with a different level of you know different starting level. It just makes it really it's a it's an interesting design problem that you know to to give that power fantasy the the ability to build up and make your board better and better over time is a little bit in contradiction with like oh is this a good game where I'm actually getting challenged because we both came in on relative equal footing. It's, it was also interesting, just like without turning this into a Fort Condor podcast, the way that the game starts of you seeing exactly what your opponent has and knowing what type of, you know, thing beats each thing. It's like, oh, I can change my deck to counteract exactly what they have without them doing any sort of changes to theirs, which was like, all right, this kind of completely unbalances it, but still to your point it becomes then just a power fantasy of i'm just gonna destroy all my opponents yeah <laughs> i'd say on on balance i was more a favor of it than than not yeah um, yeah i'd say pleasant surprise for for something that popped up and i was expecting to stay in <laughs> i think you wanted to call out some of the fun things that yuffie was doing in this game yeah there was just a couple of those moments that made me smile, which was like Yuffie humming the classic battle theme after a win is 
just... That's actually been a, a running gag in a lot of the Final Fantasy things. There's a scene in Advent Children where yeah. Tifa knocks out one of the new kids, I think. And then she's standing there. All of a sudden, the, the classic mu battle music, victory music plays. <laughs> And then the guy stands back up and pulls his cell phone out of his pocket, and it's the ringtone on the cell phone oh, that somebody's calling him. That's uh, very yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, those moments just, I guess that's playing on nostalgia, right? Like, that's definitely hitting that spot of, all right, that's that's fun. Yuffie just in general, just like showing up and like monologuing to the camera, even in like the <laughs> centipede boss battle. Yeah. It's like when she finally kind of reveals herself, it's like, all right, this, sure. Like she has that whole monologue and then she's like, but where's Avalanche? Yeah. The box breaking mini game. It's like, sure. Like you're on the conveyor belt and like just throwing. Yeah. It was like, why is this here? But I'm kind of having fun with it. So sure. Give your physics simulation a good run for its money. And then running into to Marley who just shit all over Cloud's emotional, like, unavailability. <laughs> it was just another one of those small moments that I was like, all right, I see you. That, these all gave me just a, a kind of a shit-eating grin on my face, and I appreciate it when, when games give you that. Was there any kind of moments in particular that stood out to you? Man, I wish we could, you know, sit here and revel in a bunch yeah. of them forever. I'm just trying to think of... I don't... I think she was, but... Aerith's foster mother, I, I don't oh, remember yeah. being a very big part of the first game, and her, the interactions with her really kind of helped build out Aerith as a real-life person who was actually living in this world versus being this, you know, god who just happened to be, we roll up upon, but like, the way, the way she talks with Cloud and just knows that he's a bad influence on her, and Cloud agrees and, like, tries to sneak out in order to honor her wishes. Like, there's a whole bunch in that interaction which I just thought was really sweet and tragic, like, bittersweet. A lot. I really liked a lot of that interactions and then the Aerith's garden right outside there both in the um, in the in the daytime and at night was another just freaking beautiful scene um, as soon as you brought that up that was the first thing that came like screaming back to my memory it was just or the house being set in that garden and wandering through the flowers is that is a moment and and even like there's that school scene i don't know it's not coming back to me very much, but I, I do remember being kind of blown away with how how much world building it felt like I got out of the, the little school there. Yeah, it turns out Midgar feels like a real place, and so do the slums. I am super excited for another game in this series. And, you know, after our conversation today, I'm really excited about going back and checking out some of the things that I missed, in particularly this. There's a book, On the Way to Smile, which takes place between the end of the first game and before Advent Children, which is kind of the, the sequel movie, which I want to go back and, and check out. And maybe if I could figure out some way to experience a little bit more of Dirge of Cerberus and Crisis Core, I feel like those are kind of missing for me as part of the overall story here that I'm kind of 
eager to go back and check out a little bit more. Um, I have really been like this was a foundational game for me, and it, the idea of a remake is one of those whispers that I had heard for years and years, and was always it. it, it it was something I always wanted, but never kind of ever expected would be something that actually really happened in my lifetime. So, and and for it to be as special as this thing is, to have been completed or have been treated with such complete respect, such like it's such a beautiful project that is both the culmination of giant storyline which is something that gets to me but also a new stepping off point for new players to bring people in and let them experience some of the same kind of feelings that I had felt as a younger young adult um I really just am completely floored by this game and can't give this thing anything else than a 10 Before I give my kind of wrap-up thoughts here, I do have one last question for you, Will, which is now after this conversation, I recognize it would be hard to go back and play Final Fantasy VII, especially as, you know, very text-based and the combat, things that don't naturally speak to me, but my curiosity continues to exist in perpetuity for experiencing that for what that was would you recommend going back to the original ff7 and finding some way to play it on whatever re-release is probably the you know best one at this point i really wish the answer was yes if that'll <laughs> if that's enough for you but um i it's something that i might do i might go and spend my time with it again um, yeah but even nothing personal, no offense, but I, I just can't imagine your tastes in current modern gaming being any way fulfilled by going back and playing that again. I feel I, like I'd brute force my way through it. Yeah. I think there's probably better ways at this point. Go watch a YouTube cut through yeah. Let's Play something. Turn somebody on doing a Let's Play and just let it sit in the background for 40 hours while you do something else. <laughs> um Oh man, I need someone that's doing like the It's King things with just with Final Fantasy as a podcast of like, hey, we're just going to talk about the playthrough of Final Fantasy VII and be like, cool, I'll just listen to this for the next 40 hours. I bet someone's probably done that actually. But all right, that's that's fair. I would be curious also, I know that some of the older RPGs, uh, JRPGs specifically, like some of the re-releases had added a little bit of like quality of life to be able to like fast forward through battles or different things of that nature to play the game faster but yeah i'll probably probably leave it on the shelf and continue to have my mind blown by listening to to you explain what may have happened in the previous world um yeah my closing thoughts on final fantasy 7 remake is one of gratitude that I took the time and the opportunity to play it. And I came to the remake late also. I also was still a naysayer, even though this was perpetually on my backlog of thinking, ah, this won't really connect or I won't know what's going on because I don't know the 
original Final Fantasy VII, and is this a good place to get into it? And then to be pleasantly surprised throughout the entire playthrough of, A, I do get an opportunity to meet these characters and develop an understanding of them in possibly a greater way than people that played the original, especially with some of the side characters probably. And then B, the combat and the actual mechanics of play being fun. Like that's an honest surprise to me that I connected with that portion of it and wasn't like, okay, I just need to get through the 40 hours here because the story's interesting. And instead it was, no, there's a marriage of the two places here. And this is a game that when I have a little bit of time, I was like, I want to actively pick it back up. It wasn't, oh, I guess I should go put in some time to Final Fantasy tonight. And I think that speaks to the fact that we did this podcast a year late for playing the original Final Fantasy VII Remake, or at least when I when I played it, which was the summer of 2021, and then playing Intermission over the last few weeks before recording, that there is something truly magical here that Square captured. And, you know, they say lightning doesn't strike twice, but it certainly appears to have done so here. And now as I look forward, I can't believe that I'm this guy, but as I watch some of these video game conferences that come up, I will probably freak out when they announce Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two or whatever they end up calling it. And I will be hyped to actually be there on day one and see what's happening there and come back here for another conversation to see what, what I might've missed, but also what I might've gained. So a high, high recommendation. If I were to attach a score to it, it'd be a, a nine out of 10. So very, very good video game. All right, so let's talk about how Mako actually works. In <laughs> oh, so that's how they integrate it with the body and then also use it as an energy source. And then it's also power plant and they refine it. So let me it. tell you about the life. Yeah. The life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. man. Yeah. 